0: The first reading this evening is taken from the book of Psalms, Psalm 32, being at the first verse. And this may be found on page uh, 560 of the Church Bible or on the screen behind me. Psalm 32 of David. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy on me, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess, my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous thing. All of you are upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God.
1: Our second reading is uh, from Luke chapter 15. It's page uh, 1049, or on the screens behind me. Luke chapter 15, starting at verse 11. So we're returning to uh, the story of the prodigal son. We looked at it last week, we're looking at it again this week. Uh, last week we looked at the story of the brothers and this week it's the story of the father. But I'll read it again to you now. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat to go and celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you killed the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So last week, we thought about two alienated brothers. This week, we're thinking about the father. One of those brothers, an overtly rebellious son, the other silently so. We recognize so well that independent streak, don't we? That streak of rebellion which propels you out of your family home to go and seek your fortune somewhere else. So, as a result, we tend to skip straight on from the beginning of the story right onto that middle section in the far country. And there we follow the sun's rise and fall. But for the father, disaster comes much, much sooner. It's a struggle for me, I guess, for all of us, really, to understand what's going on here, partly because we think so differently about inheritance here in the UK. We've come to see inheritance in monetary terms, and estate is valued, and uh, the, uh, uh, the, the person who, um, the inheritor uh, who's receiving that may well have to, to to sell off quite a lot of the estate in order to pay Uh, the capital gains taxes, in order to receive the rest of it. And equally, because work doesn't tie us to the land anymore, we don't have such a kind of, such a visceral commitment to this piece of land that we have inherited from our parents and that we, one day, will hand on in our turn to our children. And equally, to avoid tax, Parents are encouraged these days to think about passing on some of their wealth to their children in advance before they die in their lifetime. And so children, in consequence, come to think of their inheritance as something already belonging to them and that's a negotiable asset. But in the Middle East, it's completely different. A researcher writes, for over 15 years, I've been asking people of all walks of life from Morocco to India, and from Turkey to the Sudan, about the implications of a son asking for his inheritance whilst his father is still alive. The answer has almost always been emphatically the same. The conversation runs like this. Has anyone ever made such a request in your village? Answer, never. Could anyone ever make such a request? Impossible. If anyone did, what would happen? His father would beat him, of course. Why? Because this request means, I wish you were dead. He wants his father to die. The researcher notes only two occasions where such a request had been made. In the first case, the son was driven from the home. And the second is related like this Pastor Vikan Galusian of Iran, with a convert church of Oriental Jews reported that one of his leading parishioners in great anguish told him, my son wants me to die. The concerned pastor discovered that the son had broached the question of inheritance. Three months later, the father, a Hebrew Christian, a physician in previously good health, died. The mother said, he died that night. The shock to him was so great that his life was over. Well, Middle Eastern culture still contains resonances, echoes of biblical culture and practice. And Jewish commentaries on the Bible and the law suggest the same thing. In asking for his inheritance, whilst his father was still living, the prodigal son had paid a mortal insult to his father. A man had two sons, and the younger one said to his father, Father, I wish you were dead. You can imagine the shocked hush of Jesus's audience. They listen in horrified fascination, knowing what's going to to happen next. The father will beat the boy and drive him out of the home. And he'll soon realize that he's thrown away any chance of an inheritance. So here is the first astonishing twist of Jesus's story. Instead of throwing him out, this father decides to grant his son's request and he divides the property, secure enough in his own love for his sons to endure their rejection. The son, not surprisingly, uh, recognizing the anger and hostility that he's caused amongst his neighbors by his insolent behavior, packs up and leaves town pretty quickly. In the Greek, it suggests that he not only took the inheritance that he'd been given, but he also took everything else that he had. He cleared out his room and left. I was thinking this morning what it would be like if uh, Emily, my daughter, going off to university, had taken, you know, all her stuff with her that's scattered all over the house. Well, to begin with, you might think that there was something quite attractive about that, but if you then went into her room, and there was not a single trace of her left. Imagine how you would feel of your child just wiping themselves out of your life. The son cleared everything he had and left home, leaving his father heartbroken. But his father loving him in freedom and knowing that love can only be received in freedom, lets him go. He doesn't try to hold on to him or keep him. He lets him go to learn the lessons of life. Well, in the far country, sadly, perhaps predictably, things turn sour as the starving and miserable son finally comes to himself and makes his decision to return and journeys home, he's aware of several very uncomfortable uh, um, encounters that are awaiting him. Most significantly, of course, with his father. So he has insulted him, he has uh, uh, taken off everything that he had and, and, and left home and thumbed his nose at his father. But more than that, In Jewish law, even if a father chose to settle his estate in advance, he retained the rights to the proceeds of his land until his death. Well, this son hasn't only insulted his father, he's also squandered his father's livelihood. So how will his father react? But before he gets to his father, he's also got to run the gauntlet of the village. He knows that as soon as he is Seen at the ed- at the outskirts of the village, he will gather around him a crowd of uh, jeering um, onlookers. A frightening pos- prospect with, son- with stones so close to hand, because a disobedient, rel- rebellious son, in the Jewish law, is um, there is the permission there is for the father for the family to stone that son. Terrifying. No easy decision for him to make to go home. But as the crowd closes in around him, what is this extraordinary sight they see? His father running towards him. Well, I know that sounds pretty strange enough that, you know, I know um, my family might think that the, the idea of me running these days was quite beyond belief, but in the Middle East, No established uh, householder ever runs anywhere. It's hot, your robes, your flowing robes will get tangled up around you. It's undignified, it's humiliating. You do not run. But this father runs towards his son. Perhaps he knew that this bankruptcy was inevitable. And so he's been standing on the roof watching out for his son. But he also knew the bitter um, welcome that his son would receive as he arrived in the village with his tail between his legs. So spotting him disconsolately moving up the village road towards the village, he dashes panting through the village, desperate to reach his son before anything terrible happens. Perhaps he's aware too that his extraordinary arrival will take the attention off his son and onto himself. I was speaking to someone after this morning's service, and they told a story of uh, that somebody else had heard of uh, Jimmy Swaggart. You'll remember the um, uh, the TV televangelist, American televangelist, who who was disgraced and imprisoned. And whilst he was in prison, he was set to cleaning the latrines. And as he was doing so, a, a prison guard came to him and said, um, uh, you've got to get a visitor. And he said, well, just let me clean up. And he said, no, no, you've got to come now. He came out into the visitor's uh, place. And there was Billy Graham that had come to meet him, wrapped him up in a big bear hug, ignoring the stench, and greeted him with the love of God. And when he came out of prison, Billy Graham met him at the prison gate, picked him up in his car, and on the first Sunday came to meet him at his house and walked with him to church and walked through the doors to the front of church with his arm around this renegade and returning son. And you can imagine that the action of Billy Graham not only was a welcome to this to this um, penitent and, and broken minister, but also distracted attention away from him and therefore gave him the the permission as well as the honor to come back in. What an amazing picture of this father humiliating himself himself to draw attention away from his son. And like Billy Graham, gasping for breath as he arrived and embracing this son still smelling of the pig pen in rags that are filthy with the filth from the pig pens. He embraces him and kisses him in the Greek again and again. He goes on kissing him and embracing him. Look, my neighbors, this is my son. I know what he's done to me, but see how I love him. Turning to the servants who've run out there with him, he commands them, quick, go fetch the robe of honor. The best, the finest robe. Whoa, oh, whose robe, sir? Mine, of course, my robe. Let me put my robe around him so all the village will see how I honor my son. Put my signet ring on his finger so that he can see he still has my trust. Put shoes on his feet so that everybody will know that this is a son of the house to whom they must still defer and then kill the fattened calf, the one that we've been preparing for a party, the one that will feed far more than our household. So we'll have to to invite the whole village to come and join us in eating it, otherwise it would all be a waste. How public this reconciliation. Rescued beyond all expectations from the villagers' scorn, the dazed son finds himself overwhelmed, restored to a place of honor. A lost son is found, not by chance, but by the extraordinary generosity of this amazing father. And Jesus' hearers would have understood all too well the huge cost of this act by this a uh, snubbed and humiliated father. The generosity of his love. The cost of that welcome. It's absolutely clear what Jesus is saying with this parable. This is a story of our heavenly father. Of a love so generous that it accepts our insulting demands for autonomy. And shares with us the riches of this world even though he knows how disastrous our choices are going to be, how we're going to hurt one another, how we're going to hurt ourselves as all our decisions go wrong. But should we recognize our failure and our need and contemplate returning to him, hoping for the help and care that nobody else will or can give us? We might expect anger and rejection as we come back to the one that we've scorned and snubbed, But this father is so unspeakably generous, so glad to see us come home that he has no such thought. His forgiveness is instant. He bears for us the shame of our past and he offers us a rich new future of intimacy and significance with him. In fact, in a richly ironic twist with this father, it's the elder son who is sent into the far country to do what older sons are supposed to do and to bring the news of the desire for reconciliation of the father. So mired in our pig slough of wretchedness or stamping around the courtyards of resentful loyalty, will we accept his selfless kindness in coming to us? Will we Will we let him put around our shoulders his glorious robe of righteousness, put his ring of authority on our finger? Can we let ourselves be led into his home and can we taste of the sacrifice that he has made for us? Then we'll know how much our Father loves us and how great his joy. But there's more. Our Heavenly Father doesn't just want us to be prodigal children leaving behind our pleasure-seeking or self-serving lives and returning home to Him. Nor does He merely want us to see us drop our self-pitying resentment as older brothers and enjoy the relationship with Him that we already have. More than that, He wants us too to become fathers like Him. On this Father's Day, of course, we're celebrating those who have the opportunity, those who try their hardest, and those who, for us, have succeeded in being this kind of father. Humble, self-sacrificing, forgiving, restoring, empowering, honoring, loving their children through thick and through thin. But in fact, our Heavenly Father wants each one of us, whether a man or a woman, whether with children of our own or not, to join him in sharing his father heart for all his children, for those of his children who run to us seeking a haven or who stamp around outside the circle of our relationship, resenting the choices that we make. We are God's sons and daughters, and he wants us to live in the fullest blessing of that relationship with him. But he also wants us to grow up beyond being mere children who seek only our own blessing in his presence, but become those who also seek to bless others around us, regardless of the cost. And that cost can be very great. We should never underestimate the cost of self-sacrificially forgiving and restoring. I guess we've been listening to the stories coming out of Charleston this week. The young man who walked into a church of our brothers and sisters across the pond and who shot them up. Seven or eight and nine people died. And there have been stories of the funeral and a courtroom, and members of that congregation who have lost family members speaking out costly words of forgiveness to this young man. I want to finish with a story very like that, which comes from one of the truth and reconciliation trials in South Africa. A frail black woman faces a white security police officer this officer, Mr. Vanderbroek, had come to the woman's home, taken her son, shot him at point-blank range, and then burned the young man's body on a fire while he and his men were partying nearby. Several years later, Vanderbroek, the same officer, returned to take her husband as well. And then two years after that, Vanderbrook came back to fetch the woman herself. She was taken to a place beside a river where she was shown her husband, bound and beaten, but still strong in spirit, lying on a pile of wood. The last words she heard from his lips as the the officers poured petrol over his body and set him aflame were these. Father, forgive them. A member of South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission turns to her and asks, so what do you want? How should justice be done to this man who has so brutally destroyed your family? I want three things, begins the old woman calmly. I want first to be taken to the place where my husband died so I can gather up the dust and give his remains a decent burial. She pauses, then continues. My husband and son were my only family. I want secondly, therefore, for Mr. Vanderbroek to become my son. I would like for him to come twice a month to the ghetto and spend a day with me so that I can pour out on him whatever love I still have remaining in me. And finally, she says, I want a third thing. I would like Mr. Vanderbroek to know that I offer him my forgiveness because Jesus Christ died to forgive. This was also the wish of my husband. And so I would kindly ask someone to come to my side and lead me across the courtroom so that I can take Mr. Vanderbroek in my arms and embrace him and let him know that he is truly forgiven. As the court assistants lead the elderly woman across the room, Mr Vanderbroek, overwhelmed by what he has just heard, faints. And as he does so, those in the courtroom, family, friends, neighbors, all victims of decades of oppression oh. and injustice, begin to sing confidently, but softly. Uh. But now I'm found Was blind But now I see Amazing grace Through the prodigal son we learn the humility to turn again home. Through his brother, the faithfulness to accept and to welcome. And through the Father, we learn that despite our insolent, insulting treatment of our Heavenly Father and our profligate squandering of his gifts to us, he stands on his rooftop longing for our return and sends his son rushing towards us to embrace us and to bring us home again. But more than that, we learn to find the courage with our Heavenly Father to bear with rejection and to choose to bless, to care for those he loves, to forgive and to restore them whatever the cost to us. We're going to finish with a song written by a guy called Jared Cooper. His father was a clergyman, but he uh, pushed all that beside him and had a final life, <coughs> drinking and drugs, until one day he returned to his Sty smashed out of his head in despair, and he turned to his heavenly father and said, if you will receive me back, I offer myself to you now. And reflecting on that time, he wrote this song. King of kings, majesty, in robes of love I don't deserve. I stand before you now. Let's sit or stand as we sing to this extraordinary father who invites us into his fatherly love, welcomed home to become like him, a father to many others. King of kings, majesty, God of heaven living in me, gentle saviour, closest friend, strong deliverer, beginning, beginning and end, all within me falls at your throne. Let's worship him.